Please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Throughout the Gospel of John, there is an increasingly obvious division between those who follow Jesus and believe in him and those who follow Jesus and do not believe in him. This reality in the Scripture should greatly inform your thoughts and my thoughts about that very reality in our day, that there are innumerable people who, in a sense, follow Jesus. Those on what the Bible would call the broad path. So at this point in our text, we've seen this increasing division between those who are legitimately following Jesus. And you remember back in chapter 6, verse 66, is that having said, this is hard to believe. This is a hard thing to believe. They turn and they walk away from him. And they're called disciples. So don't think that the primary key term in the Scripture that best defines and articulates what a Christian is is the word disciple. Certainly the disciple of Christ, the true disciple, is an excellent term. We love that term. But the right term is believer. The right term is believer. That's what separates us from the disciple who's not a believer. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I can't think of a better passage to intro the study we're going to go into this morning because what's happening here is Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, most of whom had some semblance of being in the Lord, most of whom in the body of Israel, the assembly of God at this point would have certainly had ample opportunity to trust in the Lord with all his goodness and all his kindness, all his miracles, all his blessings. Many, though, would have proven themselves to be false converts. And so the call from the prophet Isaiah is to seek the Lord while he may be found. And so much of what ought to be taking place when a church is going through the book of John is what's going on in the narrative of the book of John, and that is that there would be a fine-tuning going on. And so last week, one of the things I emphasized with you is that my hope is that there would be a cleansing process in our church. That the line, the true line between the believers and the false believers, the disciples and the false disciples, the converts and the false converts would grow. That that line would be clear and that it would be a line driven by love. You remember we looked at James 2 last week and we said where James says that mercy triumphs over judgment, James was talking about hypocritical, unloving judgment. You remember he starts that section by pointing to the fact that it ought to come from love. And what he is exposing is the fact that there are those who criticize or judge or discern with a lack of love. Our discernment, our judgment must be rooted in love. And as we've said often, the most unloving thing you or I could do is to pretend that a false convert is a true convert while his or her life continues to reveal a disinterest in any degree of holiness but just the appearance of holiness. Where Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He's speaking to Israel, most of whom are believers. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon In verse 25 of our text this morning, John 7, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, they knew where he would come from. They would have been well aware of the words from the prophet Micah, Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." But there was a persuasive effort to convince the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, that they would not know where he had come from. And this is something that commonly happens. Isn't it 
something that you can probably remember. You can probably remember a number of occasions where you're sitting under sound teaching and someone mentions that some particular concept is nowhere in the Bible. And you think, how's that possible? I've heard that so much. I've heard that so often. How could that possibly not be in the Bible? And you start receiving that challenge. You start thinking through it and you start looking for it and you realize I've been so deceived. And this is what had happened. This is Satan's greatest effort to destroy the veracity of Scripture in the hearts of those who would otherwise trust the Lord. Particularly with regard to the character of Christ, even some seemingly insignificant detail such as where he would come from. But they're on to something here. Notice that in verse 25, John says, some of the people of Jerusalem. So this is a particular sect, or at least a particular group of people. He's pointing out that this isn't the whole crowd, this isn't the whole of Israel, this isn't all the Jews, but some Jews, some people particularly in Jerusalem are asking the question, isn't this the one they've been saying they're going to kill? You know, prior, a different group of Jews had asked the question, don't you have a demon? because you seem paranoid that you're accusing us of wanting you dead. Well, they were apparently either unaware or disinterested in knowing that the Pharisees had, in fact, attempted to kill him at that point and would again later attempt to kill him. And their response is, you have a demon. And that's obviously an effort to make a stab at making him seem so ridiculous for saying something that was clearly true. But here... Whether these folks are more honest or just more informed, they're pointing to the fact that the Jewish leaders had, in fact, wanted him dead. And so they're starting to speculate. You see this line growing, this dividing line between believers and unbelievers? They're starting to speculate with regard to why they wouldn't do something about it. Here he is. He's speaking openly. He's in the synagogue, and they're not doing anything about it. Is it possible that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But wait a minute. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, they would certainly know where he comes from. Scripture had prophesied that. Matthew 2, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, a reference back to Micah 5. In verse 28, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Numerous times the book of John tells us that it's not yet his time. Simple. God's timing is perfect. God had determined the time at which Christ would suffer, the time at which he would die, and the time at which he would be resurrected. Why is this thrown in there, here or in the other places where it's added? It's there so that we might not be perplexed with regard to why something's not going on that we would hope would go on. 
Why doesn't he just get to it? Why doesn't he just take care of business? Why doesn't he just expose the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? Why doesn't he just do that which would lead to our eternal hope and prevent himself from all the agony that would come? A couple things. Number one, as I said, it's God's prophesied timing. Two, it displays Christ's obedience to the Father. To this day, Jesus does not know when he'll return. No one knows, not even the Son of Man. And in his willingness to take on human flesh, he displayed for us what it looks like to trust the Father. And that's what we are to do, and this helps us. Jesus would simply say, well, it's not my Father's timing. It's not the appointed time. Things could go this way or that way. I could do a lot to cause that to happen. But I'm going to maintain my devotion to trusting the Father. Now back in verse 28 where he says, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. This is a statement that Jesus will make a number of times. He's pointing back to the reality that he existed in eternity past. You know, in John 17, when Jesus prays that high priestly prayer, one of the very clear statements he makes is that he desires for his glory to be returned to him. He's asking the Father to return the glory to him, which he enjoyed with the Father, when? Before the world existed. And so for those who want to declare that he somehow is simply a created being. That really ought to be ready in your back pocket. That when the Jehovah's Witness stops at your house, or when the pseudo-Messianic Jew declares to you that he is simply begot of God, you want to be ready. Well, wait a minute, let's go to John 17. Jesus is clearly declaring He existed with God in eternity past. And you might be a little bit surprised at some of the lingual gymnastics some will go through to dismiss that. Or this, in John 20, verse 28, that Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Had an interesting conversation with a guy this last week who has gone through all kinds of efforts to explain how Thomas was not speaking about Jesus when he looked at Jesus and said, my Lord, my God. But somehow he's actually talking about the Father. And we would call that blatant hermeneutic dishonesty. It's false hermeneutics. That somehow Thomas was not talking to Jesus about Jesus when he said, my God, and that somehow he's talking to the Father. The real critical issue there is that Jesus didn't correct him. Had Thomas been wrong in his declaration that Jesus is God, Jesus would have said, hold on there. But he didn't. The the massive evidence, the massive proof of Jesus' deity throughout the Scripture can't be denied, and so it requires a whole lot of dishonesty to attempt to undo it. So when he says, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know, you remember that he had really 
exposed the scripture-dismissing problem of the Jews that had you known the law of Moses, you would have recognized me. Your father is not Moses. Your father is not Abraham. He goes on to explain, your father is the devil. And what you'll see throughout the scripture, for the most part, when such a drastic declaration is made, it's nearly always as a result of an exposure that someone is either blatantly or less obviously dismissing the word of God. It's a satanic effort. I believe it's Satan's greatest effort. It's his greatest plan of mastery to destroy people's lives by coloring or confusing the word of God. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Hello? The Pharisees, the Jews, the leaders of the Jewish people, insistent that this is not the Christ. They've already begun to speculate. Maybe they know. Maybe that's why they're not putting him to death. We know they want to put him to death. They're not putting him to death. He's teaching. He's teaching the same things he's been teaching. He's teaching from Scripture. He's amazing. They're awestruck with his teaching. They're awestruck with the knowledge that he has. How does this man have this information, this knowledge, when he has no learning? He hasn't been taught. He hasn't been through the rabbinical schools that the other Jewish boys had been through. How does he have this teaching? But many believed in him. They believed in him. Their trust is in him. They're placing their trust in him. And so they got lots of questions. Now, don't be too critical of these folks in the questions that they're asking. I think a lot of times this is really easy for us when we're pretty convinced that we have our theology screwed down as tightly as it should be, and it's all right. A lot of times we look at those who are brand new in the faith, and we think our role is to simply correct them. Often the opportunity is just to wait for the right questions. You know, don't force somebody to drink through a theological fire hose just because you're convinced they're in Christ now. That's what discipleship is about, right? Taking the time necessary to go through a book, to pray, to just read Scripture together, to memorize Scripture together, just gently, slowly take the time and deal with an infant as if he's actually an infant. You'd think, why don't they know more than this? Well, their eyes have just been opened. They're just starting to grapple with the hypocrisy of those whom they thought were the real thing. I think oftentimes the greatest hypocrite is one of the greatest players on our team. You know? The person who embraces and espouses and promotes bad theology, who in the privacy of his own home has zero credibility and that really leaks out into his relationships at work, especially in the church shows himself not to be trustworthy. And in those moments where his greatest errors are on display, he doubles down, digs in deep, and says, no, this is how it is, when he's got no credibility. Pharisees had no credibility. 
I mean, even though they had done a great job of bamboozling the people with the idea that they themselves were better than everybody else, they certainly would have seen the inconsistencies of their lives. I mentioned it earlier, but it's appropriate at this time to point to John 20, verse 30. And I want you to turn there. I know many of you have it memorized. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now look back at our verse. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? See what's happening? They're overwhelmed with the amazing reality of his miraculous ability and his kindness and his love and his mercy and his willingness to perform miracles for the sake of people's better good, to heal the lame. So, Pharisees, will the true Christ do more than he's doing? Who could do more than what he's doing? And John later reports that all that he did couldn't possibly be recorded. It's too much. But those miracles led to an initial interest. It's never miracles that ascertain legitimate saving faith, except for one miracle, and that's the miracle of the resurrection. That's the singular, exclusive miracle by which we are saved and with which we are sanctified and by which we are kept. It's Christ's resurrection power. That's not a platitude. That's not a catchphrase. It's Christ's resurrection power that performs the work of sanctification in us when we trust him, when we obey him, when we rest in him with hard work. And they believed in him. They believed in him. But it wasn't exclusively because of the signs. It was the truth that he spoke. And it comes down at this point in a massive avalanche of reality that he is from God, that God sent him. He is the Son of God. He is the preexistent one. He is God. And this is why we repeatedly, and I think necessarily, must keep saying that the person who does not believe in the deity of Jesus is not regenerate. He's hanging on by his own thread. He very likely is hanging on by his own performed, infused righteousness, which he doesn't even have, but he wants to believe he has, and he wants other people to believe he has. And when he's done with all that, you know, when he's truly experiencing the liberty of the gospel, he rests in the person of Jesus, and he enjoys doing that with people who rest in the person of Jesus. And the signs were the initial sensitivity-creating realities. You know, we like to say for the person who we can't confidently say he's in Christ yet, but we certainly see him growing in his interest. We would say that God has cast special light upon that person, and his sensitivity or his interest is growing. 
We wouldn't say there's growth, right? You wouldn't say that about a dead person, that there's growth there. Don't say that. Say that it seems as if the Father is drawing him unto the Son. We don't know, but we'll see. So we're going to fertilize that. We're going to do everything we possibly can to nurture that, to be available, to be active, to be involved in that person's life so that he or she would know the difference between repentance and penance. The difference between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. The difference between performance and obedience. So we've seen here that Jesus is sent by the Father from heaven and he prepares those who follow and believe in him. That's point number one. Jesus sent by the Father from heaven prepares those who follow and believe in him. What do we mean here by prepares? We simply mean he's teaching, right? That's what Jesus' ministry essentially is. Mathetes. He's teaching. He's living with the disciples. We like to say he's doing life with the disciples. By the way, I don't at all prefer the term Christ follower. That's gained a lot of popularity in our age. Because look at all the Christ followers who walked away. Don't be a follower of Christ. Be a true believer in Christ. Oh, there's such a massive difference. Believe in him. Trust in him. And receive his preparation. You know, you think of probably the Thessalonians who eagerly received the word of God amidst affliction. So whatever the affliction was, the affliction was the gas on the fire of obedience for them, that they trusted in the Lord by eagerly receiving his word. And Paul commended them. Paul talked about his and Silas and Timothy's faithfulness to teach them, but then he commends them for their willingness to eagerly receive the word of God. In many senses, this is why we have the three primary ministries in our church that we do, and we don't provide a smorgasbord for you to choose from. We want those ministries to feed you, giving you the necessary daily bread upon which to really understand what it is to be reconciled to God through Christ and to grow in your likeness to Him. That's our worship service, that's our discipleship ministries, and that's our family groups. All of those critical to your spiritual growth in their own contexts. So as Jesus was sent from the Father, this displays his deity. He pre-existed the creation of the world. Colossians 1 calls him the creator and the sustainer of the world. He is God. He is from heaven. He comes in the flesh. He comes from heaven by the Father, and he prepares those who follow and believe in him. Point number two, Jesus returning to the Father in heaven perplexes those who follow and reject him. I hope just a quick reading of that sentence caused a light to come on for you with regard to those who have a seeming sincere interest in the person of Christ, and yet when they hear increasingly deepening theology, they throw up their hands and say, this is a hard saying, who can believe it? 
and they walk away. Let's read it again. Jesus, returning to the Father in heaven, perplexes those who follow and reject him. Now, it's good at this moment, I think, to go back and read our so that statement, which you know, intends to kind of distill the text we're in today. Jesus continues to expose the distinction between those who believe in him and those who do not, so that more will believe and have eternal life. Jesus trusts the Father, having predetermined in eternity past whom he will save, to bring them to him. And so Jesus, like you and I, is committed to being faithful in ministry, knowing that the Father will bring about the conversion in his proper and predetermined timing. And you and I ought to be thinking this way, that eternal life will come to more as we display gospel faithfulness. And often what will happen is those who professed to know Christ, who followed him in some sincere sense, but didn't actually believe in the Christ of the Bible, will be awakened. And we'll see it in our midst. And we'll see that that person suddenly has a massive change of heart, and he becomes perfect. Just kidding. Making sure you're awake. He doesn't become perfect, but sadly, often that's the expectation. So let's run from either of the extreme and very bad examples. The one that says, oh, well, whether or not he's a Christian is between him and the Lord. And, you know, he was very sincere when that first seemed to happen. And while he's really not showing any faithfulness at much at all now, and whatever faithfulness he seems to show is overshadowed by a massive lack of faithfulness, let's not lie to ourselves. Let's not assume that that person is in Christ, but let's not also hold that person to an impossible standard. You can see how either of those scenarios can be used very conveniently by those who don't really want to trust Christ. They simply want to be seen themselves as righteous. Well, where we're saying here that Jesus, as he is returning to the Father in heaven, perplexes those who follow and reject him. We see this start to unfold in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Previously in our text, we see that they desired, they sought to arrest him. But here, they're taking action. Back in verse 12, you remember, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is very common in the new believer. He's scared. His theology is very fragile. He maybe barely remembers that his hope is in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so he, most of the time, doesn't know when to speak up because he hardly knows what to think, much less what to say. 
but this dividing line starts to grow. And that's what hap is happening in our text this morning. There's a lot of muttering going on. There's a lot of questioning, and the questions are growing in such a way that some people can't hold it in, and they start asking each other. They start asking sincere and important questions, and the Pharisees start to take note, so they say, the time has arrived, it's time to put a stop to this. And of course, as you know, the people are asking, maybe they think he's the real Christ, and if they got that wrong, they're in big trouble. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? There would have been a category of Gentiles or Greeks or non-Jews that had come to know Christ. So is he going to abandon us, stop teaching us, be done with us, and just go with the Gentiles? Because certainly some Gentiles at some point would have been coming to know him. We get a, a good doctrinal picture of this in Romans 11. Very important text with regard to the transfer of God's interest in Israel to Gentiles. Romans 11, beginning with verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. If you're struggling with the doctrine of election, that should go on your refrigerator. This is huge. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. This is what's going on in John 7. Jesus is perplexing those who have hardened their hearts. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, key term, I'd circle it if I were you. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Is Israel somehow no longer holding that special place in God's heart? No, that's not what's happened. That's one of the things that makes us dispensationalists and not covenantalists. We don't believe that Israel is replaced by the church. There is a future for national Israel. But that future hinges largely on the motivation in the hearts of Israel that will come out of recognizing that the Father has granted his special love to Gentiles who are not Israelites. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not that they might fall, no. By no means. That was not the issue. That was not what their stumbling was intended to lead to. Rather, through their trespass, their deliberate, volitional, willful intent to abandon the word of God. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And it's real 
salvation. Now, verse 36. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What you see going on here is what later is referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You recall that to be the one unforgivable sin. Matthew 12, 31 to 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is precisely what the pastor who wrote Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You say, what does this mean? Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit is best understood from where in John 16 we are told that the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about conviction with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit does a work in everybody's life, everybody's life. He brings about conviction. So everybody throughout the history of the world has had this sense of conviction with regard to sin, the consequential reality of judgment, and the necessity of imputed righteousness. Everybody knows that. It's a natural understanding that if I'm going to be judged, if I'm going to be condemned, if I am condemned because of my sin, I need help. So there are plenty who have heard this and have rejected it repeatedly, and in God's great patience, ultimately his anger overtakes, and there is in fact no hope. There are those. The proverb says, discipline your children while there is hope. Let that be an encouragement to those of you with small children, that every single time you wink at their sin and affirm it in any sense at all, you're chipping away at the timing in which God has made certain that there is hope. The day is coming where there will be no hope. Hebrews 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, for all those who say, well, I, I know that he's a Christian because he made a decision for Jesus. Again, one of those things that's absolutely not in the Bible. This is in the Bible, that we would hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Where is that hope? Well, verse 7 goes on to say, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Who do you know that continues to resist that to be converted to Christ means that you reflect conversion in Christ? How long will you inadvertently affirm that person's false conversion. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now remember, the context here is that there are those who have tasted of that which is good. They have, in a sense, enjoyed the Holy Spirit. They're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're not comforted by the Holy Spirit. But they're convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they resist and reject that conviction. And the term Paul uses when he speaks to Timothy about this is a heart that is seared over as with a hot iron. There's a blister and then eventually there's a callus and then another blister and another callus and pretty soon that callus becomes so thick it's impenetrable. Take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then there's a command. There's an imperative here. This is for the body of Christ. This is for the church. Here it is. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. It's nuthata'o. Encourage. Challenge. Deal with it. Address it. This is not an act of hatred or anger. It's the most loving thing you can do to bring the truth to bear upon someone's heart who is clearly disobeying the word of God. Why? Why exhort one another every day as long as it's called today? What, what does that little phrase mean, as long as it's called today? It means that tomorrow is not promised. Once we hit midnight, it's no longer called today. It's yesterday. You don't have yesterday. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How is it possible that we as believers allow the deceitfulness of sin in the lives of those we love not to be exposed by our love for them? They're deceived. We shouldn't be deceived, but many times we're willing to allow that deception to trickle into our own hearts and our own lives. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. They're perfectly willing to follow Jesus so long as they can determine what that means. But they don't believe in him. Look with me at John 14, verse 1, if you will. Let not your hearts be troubled. Is that remarkably encouraging? I mean, we all know what it's like to have a terribly discouraged heart, overtaken, overcome with grief. No, 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 don't do that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You can be most certain that if you ask the Father to show you his kindness, if you do so in the name of Jesus, believing that he is from heaven, he is the one sent from heaven, He will grant that to you. He will grant 
eternal life to all those who believe in him. And where in our text, in verse 36, the Pharisees are asking the question, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What he is saying is that the door of heaven is closed for those who repeatedly reject the invitation. The time does come for those who repeatedly and with a hard heart reject the call of God to come to repentance and display repentance in your life, in your heart, in your speech, and in your conduct. But on the other hand, we see that there is great hope to the degree that the Lord himself would say, let not your heart be troubled, for I go to prepare a place for you. And who is that place for? It's for those who in fact believe in the person Jesus. And what does that look like? It looks like repentance. It looks like a willful intent to examine one's life to see where we have disobeyed the word of the Lord, that we might honor him, that our hearts might not be troubled, and that we might spend eternity worshiping him. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in this incomparably amazing statement that you have made, and that is that you go to prepare a place for us, Lord, while today is still today for those who interact within the body of Christ, may they be unwilling to continue to harden their hearts that that root of bitterness would be exposed and rooted out, that we together would enjoy obedience to the word of God and that we would enjoy eternity together in that place that you have prepared for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.